Though it has no skyscraper buildings, the old city of Jerusalem has, arguably, one of the most recognizable skylines in the world. If you stand on the Mount of Olives, just east of the city, and look west toward Jerusalem, two features immediately catch the eye. The first is the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim holy site that sits upon the Temple Mount and dominates the skyline. The second is the city's wall, a two-and-a-half-mile bulwark that surrounds the old city and serves as a reminder of its ancient and bellicose history. To enter the city, you must pass through one of the wall's eight gates. However, if you stand on the Mount of Olives, that hill just east of the city, you'll note that there is a ninth gate, but it is sealed shut. That gate, the eastern gate, which is known to Jews as the Gate of Mercy and to Christians as the Golden Gate, formerly accessed the Temple Mount. In fact, due to its location and religious significance, it is almost guaranteed that Jesus passed through the Eastern Gate during Passion Week when he traveled from Bethany over the Mount of Olives and into the city. The prophet Ezekiel said that the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, would pass through the Eastern Gate. Of course, Christians believe that Jesus was God's Messiah. Jews, however, do not. Therefore, it is because the Jewish people still hope for a Messiah that early in the 16th century, when Jerusalem was under Muslim control, the Ottomans sealed the Eastern Gate, thus assuring that none, not even a Messiah, could pass through it and fulfill Ezekiel's prophecy. For additional measures, the Ottomans also built a cemetery around the Eastern Gate and its surrounding section of wall, the thought being that no Jew, particularly not a rabbi like the Messiah would likely be, would pass through a cemetery and thereby make himself ritually unclean. And so, the Eastern Gate remains sealed to this day, surrounded by a cemetery. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. As a reminder, you can always visit storiesofsymmetry.com for episodes, blogs, and more. Now, on to today's episode, the season one finale, titled, The Call to the East. Speaking of rabbis, death, and the Messiah, let's consider another story. It is about Jesus and his disciples. As they were journeying down the road, someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus then turned to another and said, Follow me. But that person responded, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus replied, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What an interesting statement. 
let the dead bury their own dead. What I find most intriguing about it is that Jesus was Jewish, and not only that, but a rabbi also. And being a Jewish rabbi, Jesus would have known just how important a proper burial is. Indeed, even modern Jews take burial so seriously that many choose to be posthumously flown to Israel for burial in the Promised Land, for the gathering of bones and their proper care is of paramount importance, the belief being that one day the Messiah will come and resurrect the dead, and if you are missing bones, then that part of you will not resurrect. Furthermore, if you are buried outside of the land of Israel, then you will have to tunnel through the ground to get there before you can rise. The importance of a proper Jewish burial dates back to ancient times. We can see it even when Abraham buried his wife Sarah. So it is fascinating that, in this story, Jesus seems to ignore it. Let the dead worry about burying your father, he said. You come and preach the kingdom. Despite the laconic response, there is a lot going on. Let us posit that Jesus knew something that the others did not, because Jesus didn't seem much concerned with his own forthcoming interment. When his death did come, yes, he was placed in the unused tomb of Joseph, and yes, the women went to bury him properly as soon as they were able to. And yet, Jesus resurrected before they got to him. Clearly, for Jesus, the manner in which he was buried meant little. It simply didn't matter. Jesus apparently knew that it did not matter whether he was buried with rites or hastily placed in a tomb. He was going to rise from the dead regardless. Perhaps, to that person on the wayside, Jesus was foreshadowing. Perhaps saying that there is no need to bury bodies in preparation of the Messiah because he was the Messiah. And perhaps he was also saying that there are bigger things to think about than death. Your father has died. Let us attend him no more. Do not chase after death, but after life. Therefore, come, preach my gospel, and you will find life. It is difficult to imagine a rabbi blatantly ignoring funeral rites. And yet, I can see Jesus doing that, because he frequently overturned the status quo and showed people what the real priorities were that sometimes what we think is most important is not. Perchance, Jesus was doing this with burial. But more so, it is likely that Jesus knew the heart of the person he was addressing. Maybe with his words, Jesus was really saying, I know that at some level you want to follow me, and yet you make excuses. There will always be a reason not to follow, and some of them will even be good reasons, really good reasons, like needing to bury your father. But you can't let even that get between you and following me. Don't let anything stand between you and God's call. There will always be a reason to not follow God. So in the end, you just have to go for it. My question to you, dear listener, is do you ever feel that way? like you want to follow God, but for some reason aren't ready yet. Well, it's not a good time because you just lost your job, or maybe you just got a job for the first time in over a year. Maybe you just had another kid, 
Or maybe it's because the ones you do have need school and books and clothes and braces. Maybe you can't do it because your family needs you, because mom has Parkinson's and your sister is an addict. These are good reasons, really good reasons, like being a Jew who needs to bury your father. But there's always going to be a reason. Walter Miller said, Speak up, Destiny, speak up. Destiny always seems decades away, but suddenly it's not decades away. It's right now. But Destiny is always right now, right here, right in this very instant, maybe. So what if you're awaiting destiny, but Jesus is already calling you, right this very instant? What reason do you have that now is not a good time? And when you give that excuse to Jesus, what might he say? Let the dead bury their own dead. Walter Miller again. Does the chalice have to be now, right this very minute, Lord? Or can I wait a while? But crucifixion is always now. Now, ever since before Abraham, even, is always now. And if it is now, if you feel the call of God right this minute, here and now, do you have to leave? Right this very instant, do you have to change your life? Or can it wait? Well, like any question about God, absolutes don't apply. It's complicated, it's tricky, and there's more to the story. The Call of Elisha is recorded in the first book of the Kings, the 19th chapter. And as a brief note, there is Elijah and Elisha, and they're different characters, just with similar sounding names. The text says, So Elijah came to Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. Elijah passed by and cast his cloak on Elisha, who left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Elijah said, Go back, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned from following Elijah, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh and gave it to the people to eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah. This story is reminiscent of the one about Jesus and the would-be follower that met him on the road. But in the latter case, Jesus never gave that person a chance. It was, drop what you're doing and follow me now. Elisha, on the other hand, is allowed to turn back, bid his kinfolk farewell, make sacrifices, and even host a small feast. Why the different treatment? Is it that Elijah was a prophet whereas Jesus was the Messiah? Or that, chronologically speaking, by the time that Jesus was on scene, the stakes had changed? Rather... I believe that it was about the heart, the intention. Elisha intended to follow Elijah, but thought that if he could say goodbye, then he would. And so, he got his farewell. But you'll note that it wasn't long and drawn out. The meat was boiled, not roasted. Indeed, Elisha always intended to follow, and yes, there was a sense of urgency, 
but there was still time for goodbyes. On the other hand, with the would-be follower, I think that Jesus denied that person valediction because there was never any real intention to go. In the story with Jesus, there were two people on the street. The first called out and said, Lord, I will follow you, to which Jesus replied that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then to another person, he said, follow me. It's like Jesus was testing the crowd and its thronging spectators. Random bystander, watching me as I pass. Will you follow me, or are you just here for a spectacle? Oh, no, Jesus, I'll follow you. Just let me take care of a few things. They're really important. No matter. If you don't wish to come, no one will force you. Now we ask ourselves, what happened next? When Elijah called Elisha, Elisha followed and became a great prophet. But what happened to the person that Jesus encountered? Well, we don't know. Like so many of the tales about Jesus, no ending is given. And that's because it is not about what the would-be follower did, whether that person had a change of attitude and came around to Jesus, or walked away embarrassed. Like we don't know whether the prodigal son's older brother returned to the feast. These stories of Jesus are not about what the characters in them did. They are about us. What would we do? What would you do? Will you realize the excuses that you're making when confronted with following Jesus? Or will you insist that you have something more important? Will you go for God? or not. In the episode titled Breakfast with Jesus, we talked about when Jesus called Peter and his companions, saying, Do not be afraid, for from now on you will catch people instead of fish. That story ends with, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. At first glance, the text seems clear. They dropped everything and followed him. But I wonder, I wonder if that's somewhat exaggerated for effect. I wonder if it was really as immediate as it seems. I wonder who ate the fish. Did they leave the biggest catch of their lives on shore? Or did they sell it to sponsor the nascent ministry? Certainly, that urge to follow Jesus is compelling enough that they could have left the fish without a thought or worry. But after all, the ministry happened in Capernaum, where they caught the fish, so it doesn't sound like they were off to somewhere else anytime soon. So perhaps the leaving everything behind pertains to something more than merely physical to a leaving behind of something more than fish. When Elijah left his twelve yoke of oxen, he still had time to sacrifice two of them and bring the meat back to his family. He had responsibilities that Elijah respected and that prudence resisted dropping on a dime. He said, I will stop plowing and follow you, but I still need to get these back to my family. And while I'm there, I owe them a goodbye. But other than that, I'm ready. 
from the various examples we've looked at today. It seems to depend on who you are, where you are, and what God has called you to do. Peter, Elisha, and the would-be follower all did something different when called, and they were all called in different ways and to different missions. Regardless, for Peter and Elisha, when they were called, they went. They heard, and they responded. They shema. They did not wait forever. They went straight for God. Abraham understood what it meant to go straight for God, because he left what he knew to follow God. What's more, he taught his son to trust the Lord also. So much so, that when God asked for Isaac as a sacrifice, they too obeyed, to their own righteousness. They knew God, they knew the character of the Lord, and entered into a partnership. Like the two servants who Jesus said doubled their master's talents, they knew the Father and shared in his joy. Remember, way back in episode 3, the trouble with gardens, and how, in the east of a land called Delight, God placed a garden, which we remember as the Garden of Eden. There, when mankind chose its own way over God's, we were expelled from the garden, and a veil was placed between God and us. But when Jesus came and died, he removed that veil. Jesus said that there is a river that runs through it all, from Eden and the garden to the new Jerusalem of the Messianic kingdom. That river flows forth from the temple of the Lord, which is to say, from the hearts of God's believers. And way up in the cliffs of the Golan Heights, in a pagan city called Caesarea Philippi, Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah who had come to initiate the Messianic kingdom. But even more, that Jesus was also the son of the living God. After crisis, though, Peter forgot that truth, and it was on the shores of Lake Galilee, over a breakfast picnic, that Jesus called him back. Jesus told Peter that his days of catching fish were over, and that he was called to somewhere else. Just like Joseph, who, although he lived in Egypt, he was called to God's promised land, and he was faithful to remember as much when he instructed his kin that his bones must go home. Although Peter lost sight of his mission and, Joseph died in Egypt, far from home. God expected what, to us, was unexpected. And God had a plan in place, just like when the Lord established rules for future kings of Israel long before the time of the kings. For us, our responsibility is not to make the plan, nor even to fix the problem. It is only to hear what God says and to respond appropriately. That is what it means to Shema. And if we ever wonder what God is getting out of all of it, and whether or not our interests are served, we need only to remember who God is. God is the God of Abraham, the God who, for all eternity, chose to be associated with the name of a person, thereby demonstrating incredible and selfless love for us. And now, what follows? What has all this been building up to? In this episode, we talked about the timing of responding to God. But the question is, how should I respond, and to what? What is God asking of me?
I remember somebody once said, Go west, John Wayne. But I think that God wants us to go east. East is where the rising sun is. It is to the east that we find new life each morning, warmth and illumination. It is with the rising sun that we are reminded that there's a great big universe out there, and our tiny planet is but a mote of dust in comparison. But what a special mote we are, because it was here, on earth, that God walked with mankind. And earth is the only place in existence that God died. But it wasn't wanton deicide, it was a sacrifice to restore the fundamental order of the cosmos. By looking toward the rising sun, we can remember that the dwelling place of God is with mankind. Behold, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That's how it will be in New Jerusalem. It will be just as it was at the beginning, when God dwelt with humankind in the east of a place called Delight. The east is where we have fallen from, and is to the east that we shall return. In Jerusalem, there is a gate called the Eastern Gate, and in the 1540s, the Turks walled it up. The irony is that they thought they were preventing the Messiah from coming, but in fact, they were confirming that the Messiah had already come. Ezekiel said that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate, but he went on to say that when the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it, then it shall be shut. The gate is shut. On the east side of Jerusalem, on the mount called Olives, from which you can plainly see the eastern gate, there, Jesus addressed his followers for the final time, and when he had commissioned them, he ascended into the firmament. The final commission of Jesus was, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the world, and baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have instructed you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and it has been a delight to journey through Season 1 with you. Be on the lookout for announcements about Season 2, and if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app, to receive those announcements and notifications. And if this show helps you find beauty and purpose, then please tell others about it and share it with them. Word of mouth is the best way that you can help grow stories of symmetry. But also, it never hurts to give us a positive review. Doing so will help get us seen by more people. Finally, don't forget to visit storiesofsymmetry.com for blogs, episodes, to drop us a donation if you're feeling generous, and more. Stay well, listeners, and until we meet again for season two, go with God, 
go in peace. <laughs>